1: welcome back to the movie graveyard everybody we're settling in for another almost kind of mini special episode here we're going to be talking about our favorite movies from the year 1981 and this one was a hard one let me tell you there was so so many movies who knew so many damn movies came out in 1981 surely not me trev's not here yet he'll be oh oh i think i hear a door opening
0: Hey, uh, I just, yep, yeah. i getting the sitcom Wacky Neighbor
1: entrance. <laughs> here he comes. Hey, what's up, everybody? Trev, did you finish up uh, digging up all those cinematic corpses from 1981 to bring in here tonight?
0: Uh, I mean, there was a lot. Uh, and I'll, I'll tell you what, man, I'm glad little little one-year-old Trevor didn't have, like, disposable income and the ability to go to the theater, because I wouldn't have known what to do with myself. Too many options, man. Too many,
1: damn. Too many. And, you know, I, I didn't really do, like, a lot of... um. You know, dirt, dirt digging on like what the grosses of some of these, because there were so many damn like famous movies from 1981. Uh, but uh, I would have to think some of these great classic cult classic movies had to take a bath financially because the competition was insane.
0: Yeah. I mean, like, looking at the list of the top 10 grocers of the year, it's pretty interesting because you look at, uh, Boy, man, you look at some of the, the as you said, genre classics now, yeah. and a lot of those don't end up in this top 10 mm uh-uh but number 2 of the year on golden pond the exactly. second highest grosser of the year and uh, the four seasons in the top 10 so i mean there was definitely some yeah. some odd things there but
1: and i was kind of blown away by what number 10 on the list was because honestly i always thought that was a small little cult movie i didn't realize yeah. that i didn't realize actually tickets were sold for time bandits but
0: yeah no i i thought that was weird and just what and then just look at the list in general i mean you know we've had this discussion a lot about The way cinema has changed and film distribution has changed and what kind of movies get made has changed. But you look at a year of this packed and what a strange year just in terms of the kind of variety you're getting. I mean, this is a year where a movie like Time Bandits could be a hit, but so could a movie like My Dinner with Andre, which is just two guys sitting in a diner or a restaurant talking about philosophy for two hours.
1: Yeah, it was an interesting year for sure. I don't know, this is just a bit of trivia, I don't think either one of these actors will be coming up on our list, but um, I, I will say I did find a bit of interesting trivia that 1981 uh, was the year that Kathleen Turner and Tom Cruise made their acting debuts in mm-hmm. you know different movies, so well, definitely, this is where the Cruise <laughs> era began.
0: And speaking of cruise, this is also the year where Natalie Wood falls off a boat and drowns.
1: Very much, mis- some would say that's uh, something that still needs to be looked at to this day, and still is yeah. being looked at to this day. And there are
0: also some who would say it should not be looked at this day, including, I believe, Robert Wagner and Christopher Walken. So.
1: <laughs> exactly, they're like uh, what's no, his name? Good. <laughs> they're like Harrison Ford and What Lies Beneath. They want to let this <laughs> shit stay buried. Yeah. So yeah, so. Uh, we're gonna flip the script, and we're gonna talk about actually what our one worst movie of this year was. And uh, but before we do that, I'll just run down the Academy Awards because I don't think any of these films will uh, be on our list. I could be wrong, but so the Best Picture of 1981 was *Chariots of Fire*. Best mm-hmm. Director was Warren Beatty for the film *Reds*. Best Actor Henry Fonda for *On Golden Pond*. Best Actress Catherine Hepburn for *On Golden Pond*. Best Supporting Actor hope I don't butcher this guy's name John Gilgood from Arthur Yep. best supporting actress Maureen Stapleton from Reds and then best foreign language film Mephisto directed by Estevan Sezabo from Hungary but uh, yeah so pretty much you're looking at with the exception of um, Chariots of Fire uh, pretty much all the major categories were either on Golden Pond or Reds so this mm-hmm. was a big I guess what you call prestige picture so that's going to leave me to my worst, and I kind of feel like a dick for doing this, because this is kind of like an asshole way to damn a film. But my worst film of 1981, and the reason I say that is because it was probably my most bored movie-going experience that I can remember in my life, to the point where it scarred me, I remember, for years. But my most boring time in the theater was actually seeing the film Reds that year. (laughs) Now, the reason I say I'm kind of an asshole is... I was four years old when yeah, I Yeah, I don't think this. you were
0: the target audience. For no, Red. I
1: wasn't. But I just remember because my dad was the type of person, he just, every week, he just wanted to see a movie, even if there was nothing of interest. And he just, like, it wasn't like he was dying to go see Reds, but he convinced me and my mom. And I remember all three of us just being bored to tears of, you know, the whole, whatever it was, the Bolshevik revolution, to the point where, like, I've always been curious about that movie. If I watched it as an adult, if I would think it. Yeah. yeah, I
0: was going to ask, have you revisited it? Or... I
1: haven't, not since that theatrical viewing. So
0: it's it's interesting though because Reds is actually a movie I've never seen, um, and it's one of those films that you know you, you know you and I are both cinema aficionados, and I think you feel like you should see those kind of classics. And there's just something about that one, and I even I like Warren Beatty, yeah, but so. I don't know that movie just looks boring. It, <laughs> like it's it never does. appealed to me in any in any way. Yeah, it really does. So yeah, Trev. What I, was... I think there was a brief era when I was a kid where I thought Reds was like a political thriller, you know, like Warren right. Beatty like involved in this like you know Soviet Cold War espionage thing. And then when I found out, nah, it's just about a reporter who covered the revolution. It's like, well, okay, I can I can skip that.
1: Yeah, and I totally remember that was kind of my dad's pitch to get us in the theater to watch it. Was he really thought a lot more was going to be happening with the revolutionary scenes? But when you but when you read about the movie, it's really about one man's kind of personal journey of like being a reporter and kind of covering the shit. It's not really about showing these big sweeping, uh, scenes of revolution and whatnot.
0: Yeah. All right. Well, my my worst film of the year, and uh, so this was this was even kind of tough because there was a couple I didn't like, and I was trying to think what did, what really upset me the most. Looking over these films, you know, and a lot of these obviously I caught up with later because when I was one, I didn't care if a movie was good or bad, obviously, you know. But uh, the one I kind of centered on is a to me ultra disappointing sequel, and I, and I calling it a sequel is even kind of weird, but that's uh, you know ostensibly what it is. But that's shock treatment. The Oh, follow yeah. up to a rocky horror picture show um i know it's you know over the years it started to have the smallest of cult followings finally i guess but it doesn't deserve it i i think it, <laughs> it is every bit as terrible as it was initially thought to be when it came out and it was kind of a huge failure and it wasn't even a respectable failure in the way rocky horror was it just came out and fell flat in its face and never quite recovered and, and there's good reason i mean if you if you go into this expecting you know a, a rocky horror follow-up what you're met with is different actors playing brad and janet um and really the only the only kind of enjoyable thing about the movie is jessica harper as janet is is right. always awesome like jessica harper is always great but uh oh man the guy who plays brad clifty young he's terrible um oh. And uh, just they couldn't, the story. They couldn't
1: get Barry, what's his name, to come couldn't back. Couldn't get Barry Bostwick.
0: No, yeah, that's that's, Bostwick. that's telling you something right there. You know, um, Tim Curry wouldn't come back, so he's no he's nowhere to be seen. Oh. Uh, you know, and it's not even the same kind of story. It's Brad and Janet now live in this town that the entire town is a, a TV show that gets underneath this dome, and it's kind of everybody is uh, forced to take part in different television shows brand and Janet are kind of forced to take part in this game show which ends up with brand on a like uh, almost big brother-esque reality show and then Janet kind of is being groomed into a pop star uh it's a really really weird movie and it's I, there's a part of me that feels like I should like it because of how weird it is but it's just uh I, I think it's a twofold thing right it's yeah it's the disappointment of not getting a real rocky horror sequel with the All actors right. you like and then it's also as weird as it is the songs just aren't very catchy uh, which is obviously a huge problem for a musical. So there's really not a lot not a lot pulling you into this one. So, yeah, total bummer. Um, yeah,
1: especially I, when... I think there's a reason. Yeah.
0: I, even today, right, when I, you know, Halloween rolls around, you always, like, revisit Rocky Horror, and <laughs> inevitably I'll be showing it to someone and be like, oh, yeah, what about the sequel? And nobody even knows there is a sequel still, you know? It's just... This movie's just like not even known, so.
1: I still haven't seen it, and uh, I have it on my Netflix list. It did come out on regular DVD a number of Mm. years ago, and I just it's one of those things that's on the list, but it always gets pushed down because other things get pushed up towards the list. You know what I mean? Yeah,
0: keep on pushing it.
1: Yeah, I mean, especially when you hear the songs aren't catchy. It's kind of like you know, kind of what's the point? But I I have to apologize, and I'll do my best to cut it out. But uh, when you started talking, Trev. Uh, I, I very assholishly cleared my throat into the microphone directly. I pressed the button. I thought I hit the mute button, but I hit the camera button. So you saw a brief view of me (laughs) in my bed, my bedroom. But unfortunately I I totally coughed in, in the, in the ears of uh, all our great listeners. So I'll I'll do my best to cut that out, but,
0: uh, or I mean, leave it in as an audio indicator of what the quality is of the songs (laughs) and shock treatment.
1: I just don't want to blow anybody's ears out. But yeah. And uh I, I have a slight amendment when we uh did our, our previous show, uh one of the disappointing films of the year nineteen eighty. I, I as you know, I famously listed off Motel Hell. Mm-hmm. I did a revisit this last week. The first half of the movie I kinda had the same feeling I always did. Second half, like it went completely off the rails, crazy, batshit. I, I kind of got hooked in, so I just want to clarify that for our regular listeners. I am no longer a motel hell hater. That's good to hear. Yeah. I look at it as a rough gym now and not a uh, you know a disappointment anymore. So, yeah, so uh, that's it for the bad news. I uh, didn't want to save it to the end and leave you guys bummed out. So let's go ahead and start talking about our favorite uh, movies of 1981 i have five trev has five we have not compared lists i always love it when you like you do a list show and you, it's always like the host always act like it's like a big thing like oh we didn't even look at each other's list, but really i what does that even matter to the person at home
0: mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> it's just like to us it, it keeps it surprising for me and you nobody else cares so i guess we'll do that thing um my list is—I don't know. My list is kind of weird. I think there might be at least one film that we maybe will share in common. If we—if uh, you know, one of us gets to it first, we'll just do that thing, Trevor, where we kind of you know say, "Oh, it's also on my list," but we'll just give our thoughts then, not to. Uh, you know. Yeah,
0: yeah. I felt kind of weird about my list only because you know you, when you do these kind of specials about this year, you kind of want your list to be a little surprising and varied, right? And I'll admit that apart with maybe a couple choices on mine, I think mine's probably not gonna shock people it, it's gonna be it's gonna feel f- fairly generic, but i think I think that's like a a testament to the classics of this year. oh, that I felt so like they strong. were kind of undeniable, you know
1: yeah, yeah, and there was there was one or two like huge huge name movies that it pained me to leave off my list, but again, not doing the best of the year, just really doing just a lot some of them came down to like okay i own all these movies that i gotta cut off the list and it almost came down to how many times do i rewatch it so so there was a couple that it was just that split kind of hair thing
0: yeah that's what it kind of it really was tough for me too what do i value at a certain point because i think what's more surprising to me about what's on my list is really what's not on my list because man did i leave off a lot of movies that i still consider favorites just because that's how stacked this year was
1: Exactly. I was in the same boat. So I'll go ahead and get this party started. And uh, I have a feeling this is not going to be on your list, but it's a very popular movie anyway. I'm going to go number five on my list. Most favored, 1981. I'm actually going to go with Disney's The Fox and the Hound, an animated film. Hmm. And this is, uh, you know, I'm not really into that many animated films, to be honest with you. And uh, even beyond just the nostalgia factor, but I really like this film. This film was a huge deal. I want to say it was the last really major. There was there was other animated Disney films that came out, but to me, this seemed like it was kind of like the last really big hit, major one of my youth. And it was actually new. It came out in 1981, whereas a lot of the other ones were just re-releases at that time from Disney. But yeah, I really loved *The Fox and the Hound*. Um, loved the characters. I loved how. You get to kind of fall in these lo- car- love with these characters as their babies. And, I mean, I think we all kind of know, Trev, that the Fox and the Hound is pretty much just an allegory for racism and trying to make up for the tar baby and past bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, Uncle Remus and all that. But uh, I really found the Fox and the Hound as a kid and an adult. I, don't, I do own it on Blu-ray. Uh, it's just one of those rare times that an animated film is going to choke me up. It's going to, you know, get me emotionally involved. You know... And so much is, yeah, those, uh, you know, feelings I had as a kid watching it. But also now it still does it to me. So, yeah, I'm going to go with The Fox and the Hound for number five.
0: Cool. Uh, My number five, this this was, like, the tough one because I was, like, really kind of – kept tossing up two in the air and kind of trying to pick on which one would, would fall on. Uh, should I just say the one that didn't make it, just for the hell of it? Yeah, or, do it, do it. Yeah, so what, barely making my top five, barely missing out of my top five, was uh, Stripes, the, the great Bill Murray comedy. Yeah. Uh, so, but in it taking its place, um, you know, again, this... Uh, I'm even going to say there are movies that didn't make my top five that are probably arguably better films than this. But as you said, a lot of this goes back to your nostalgia, how much you loved it as a kid, how much you still revisit it. And for me, Superman 2 uh, oh. still kind of stands really high up there for me, uh, you know, as a comic book fan, as a Superman fan. This was the Superman movie that I really grew up on. I feel like this is the one I watched on TV way more than even the first one. Um and I, I I really like it. You know, it's a film that's plagued by a lot of behind the scenes issues, but I always point to this as the kind of film that proves that that's not always the death knell of a film. Because mm-hmm. I actually really I I enjoy it, and I think the the odd mixture of Donner's sensibilities with Richard Lester's goofy comedy kind of works. Uh, I love Zod and his you know his uh, henchmen. I had a huge crush on Ursa as a kid. Uh, I kind of still do. Uh, and <laughs> still you know
1: on the spank bank.
0: Christopher Reeve will always be my Superman, and and this movie is a big part of the reason why. I think it's just a blast. It's the the final battle is great. Um, yeah, I mean, as a kid, this was this was what the MCU of the time for us. You know, it's just it yeah. felt so so big and so fun. Um, and I actually still I prefer this the, the theatrical cut to that Donner cut that came later.
1: Right, and I I feel like the Donner cut um at least kind of breathe some new life into this because the Donner Cut kind of came out not really at the dawn of DVD but kinda of right at the crest of mm-hmm. when DVD was becoming like very massively popular. So I feel like almost in a weird way that um that, that Donner Cut DVD not only reintroduced the whole Christopher Reeve Superman thing to a newer audience, but, I, like, I feel like it kind of got the ball rolling, it seemed like, for what would come, like, with the Brian Singer Superman Returns movie.
0: Yeah. Well, I think that's even, like, with the Donner cut was kind of, like you said, I think that release was tied into, like, was it? Superman Returns. Yeah, yeah it was kind of like a, uh, you know, here's a promotional aspect of it or something.
1: So. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah, yeah, th- that one didn't make my list. But, again, that was, uh, like, if we did a top ten type thing, mm-hmm. um, yeah, that would definitely have made it for sure on mine um i have to say like it's as as hard as it was and as much as you'll hear us bemoan we had to leave this or that off that's almost the fun of this list is trying to do a top five is so damn hard for just about virtually any year but especially when you get these super (laughs) mega packed years like
0: yeah i mean mean, this year in particular as as a horror fan i was really struck by what a great year it was for horror
1: yeah and
0: and some of the like undisputed horror classics i had to leave off like it was painful but uh oh, or just and, and some like not classics but also just like dumb slashers that i love this year was full of them so
1: yeah i was gonna say it, it it was in my top five to the very end when i you know i i had to um cut it off but uh there was not only so many horror films like i honestly if you're up for it you know a few months down the line I wouldn't mind revisiting and doing just kind of a quick pace show where we actually do a full top 10 each of just the horror films in 1981.
0: Oh, yeah, I would definitely be down for that.
1: Yeah, I think that would be fun just to, you know, because even if the first of all, there's so many damn slasher movies and I had the burning, which just the burning is just one of those ones for some reason. I think it's mostly the special effects and some of the weirdness stuff that's in the movie and some of the score. But I mean, I mean, it's just it's just a murderer's row, literally, of slasher films from that year. I mean, yeah,
0: and I mean, I'm gonna, like I'm not gonna give this title away. I think you know our listeners will probably know what I'm talking about. But just as like an example of that, this year saw the release of what I would, I think a lot of people and and me would consider maybe to be the best horror comedy of all time, and that didn't even make my top five.
1: So yeah, okay, yeah, I know. And it's just like, yeah. I mean, again, without giving away, but just so many, even tiny classic gems. Like, I mean, j- just to throw out because I don't think either of these are on our list. But, um, but just like, like in the same year, just wrap your head around this. In the same year, we had friday the 13th part 2 which is actually re- really established jason as a character and mm-hmm. we also had halloween 2 which was yeah. you know michael myers coming back to make a lot of money but i mean just so much awesome stuff ghost story uh even lo- even like the little like not so popular ones like bloody birthday and stuff like just really like awesome shit like i don't know so yeah i would definitely love to come back and revisit and do a top 10 of just the horror films in 1981 So, uh, number four on my list, um, this is not really a slasher, but it does have, um, a lot of the, um, you know, suspense, I guess the thriller genre, uh, again, um, it's you know with these lists of this time period, this director is going to show up on a lot of my lists probably for you know depending what year it is. But number four, I was actually going a blowout Trev from Brian De.
0: Oh yeah, this is another one that I I just keep saying it. I was like, man, how do I not have that? But
1: yeah. So, like, Blowout, if people aren't real familiar with it, because I believe, because I remember Tarantino was, like, championing this film for years because he loved it. He went to see it, like, 80 times or whatever in the theater. And it it was one of those ones where it's, like, I guess the critics kind of got tired of the De Palma shtick or whatever, and I don't think it did real well financially. But it's basically John Travolta is a sound man for a horror movie, and he's out just recording ambient sound, um kind of out in the woods near a bridge and a car comes and uh what seems like a car accident you know goes off the bridge and there also happens to be somebody taking photos so what he does is he takes his audio recording because you know the 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 titular blowout the idea was supposed to be that the car tire blew out and that this politician uh uh, Drew, Drew basically drove off this thing. Very, very similar to the, Wouldn't you say. It's it's kind of similar to the Ted Kennedy thing, Trev. Yeah, yeah. So it's like, but Travolta feels like there was more than a blowout that happens, and he, you know he reconstructs with the photos. He, he like he almost makes like a stop motion thing. He cuts the photos out of a magazine, and then he uses his audio recording. And I just it always gets me the way the Palma especially that scene and there's a lot of like the awesome split diopter shots where where there's like something in the foreground something in the background but both are in focus like he does a lot of really cool shit and there's a lot of really cool audio stuff and there's an awesome um criterion collection blu-ray that i own so there's a really nice kind of visually and you know audio uh version of this out there and it just You know, for literally 1981, like some of the techniques, like I think it was really ahead of its time, and I mean it's very much in the Brian De Palma style that like I talked about because I think Dress to Kill was on my 1980 list. I mean, it does have that Hitchcockian feel, but it's just kind of cool because I'm actually a Travolta fan. It's cool seeing him in this type of movie. Nancy, Uh, great
0: performance too.
1: Yeah, yeah, one of his best, if not his best. Nancy Allen is great in the movie, and I won't spoil it, but there's like a really awesome. climax to the film that visually is just... I think it's one of the best things the Palmer ever did. So, Blowout just being a great mystery, conspiracy uncovering type movie, exciting. You know, it's also interesting that you have this guy who's recording sound for a horror movie. There's like a great, you know, I don't want to spoil too much, but there's like a great opening where we kind of get a movie within a movie type thing. I mean, it just a lot of fun. I can't recommend Blowout really any much more than I am. I love it.
0: Yeah, no, I love it too. Uh just curious, have you also seen Blow Up, the the original film it's based on?
1: I actually haven't, to be honest with you.
0: But, yeah, that's but good too. You should you should check it out. Yeah, uh, uh, Antonioni film from the sixties. Yeah. Uh a really young uh and pretty hot Vanessa Redgrave in it. Um nice. you know, same general idea except with that one, it's a a photographer instead of an audio engineer, so it's a photo he takes. Right. But uh, but yeah, it's it's that's cool too. I think I like Blowout a little bit more just because it is a little more, you know, modern and sleazy in that De Palma <laughs> yeah. way. But uh... <laughs>
1: and it, yeah, it just has that like I don't know. It it just has that 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 uh visual atmosphere that that you yeah. know like you know we talk about nostalgia with films. Obviously, that's what we do here. This is nostalgia based film podcast, whatever. But I feel like sometimes there's nostalgia that's. Um, just based on, hey, I saw this movie when I was a kid and it was really fun. But there's also this kind of nostalgia where you appreciate the, the artistry and literally the techniques and tools and the type of cameras they use and whatever that you... I mean, no matter how hard you try, you can't recreate some of that stuff today, you know what I
0: mean? Mm-hmm. All right. Well, my number four, I, I wouldn't be surprised if this is on your list, Goat. So we'll see. But, uh, uh you know, what and how appropriate, because the man behind this is really enjoying a re- renaissance right now. It's uh genre film's favorite old grump, John Carpenter. Yes. Uh, 1981 comes in with uh, one of his stone cold classics, one of his many stone cold classics of this era. Uh, Escape from New York is my number four. Uh, Just a total, you know, undeniable pleasure film, Uh, you know, Kurt Russell and to me still his his best role, uh, Snake Plissken, Uh, you know, the infamous Snake Plissken who is tasked to save the president, played by Donald Pleasance, after his plane goes down in New York which now in the future, I believe the far future of, what is it, 1992 I think, I believe it was it?
1: I thought it was 1997, I could be
0: wrong Is that what it is? Okay, yeah, yeah you might be right, something like that right, but it's the far future, obviously uh, New York has now just been completely walled off and is a prison where they send all the undesirables and uh, the president's plane goes down and Snake pliskin is given 24 hours to retrieve him and save him before an important conference he was scheduled to give a speech at uh, a lot of just great, you know, character actors in the supporting roles. You got Harry Dean Stanton and Ernest Borgnine, Isaac Hayes playing the villain, uh, Adrian Barbeau looking amazing, yes, and just that, just that, you know. Uh, great carpenter music and the cinematography and just the i mean obviously the thing that propels us along though is just the ultimate kind of badass character of snake Pliskin who just does not give a shit about anyone but himself and is just kind of forced into this situation and it really is like it's a different kind of anti-hero i think you know we've had a lot of characters inspired by snake Pliskin uh, ever since and i think oh, the yeah. pe- I think the temptation now is always, and this is what everyone gets wrong or maybe not wrong, but it's what they feel like they have to do is they're always a piece of shit. But with that slight heart of gold, you can see peeking through and snake doesn't have that. And Mm -hmm. that's what I love. It's just, he really is what he is. He's he's, uh, what he is on the surface. He doesn't really care about doing the right thing. He just cares about doing the thing that, that suits him. Um, I mean there's like a slight moral code there but it's it's completely different than what you see in characters like even like a like a Han Solo is more right. traditionally good right where Snake is just like wow that I wouldn't want to be around that guy cuz bad things are going to happen
1: Exactly. And,
0: uh, and yeah I mean it's it's just fantastic it's uh I feel like it's the kind of film. I think this is true for some of the films we'll talk about today. But this is the kind of movie that I think you could release now and it would still be just as 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 successful because it just still
1: works. Oh, I agree, hundred percent. And actually, I'll use this time to talk about the film as well because I this was actually the next on my list. Escape from New York is number three on my list, and okay. that, I just echoing kind of what you said. Like I think if yeah, there's there's the there's all the scenes of Call Me Snake and all that kind of shit. But if you really want to boil down the difference, like you said, the difference between Snake Plissken and then those other gruff heroes, like just watch the scene where he's like... I can't remember if it's the theater or where he goes into it, and he literally just walks by a lady getting pretty much raped and just keeps walking by. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, it's like, I love it. And I also love that they depict it like... It's not just like he's the biggest piece of shit in the world just to be one. It's like they really depict that, you know, he's living in this time when... um, basically, uh, you know, people are being demonized, you know, criminals are being demonized to the extent that they're thrown into this this area that, you know, just literally everybody's gonna die, you know, one way or another. It's 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 such a out of control. It's not even a punishment really, it's just a death sentence. And, you mm-hmm. know, we kinda have Donald Pleasance as as this kind of president who's kind of um, you know, as as you get to know a little bit more about him, you realize he's just a big phony or whatever. So I love that snake kind of embodies you know i feel like the way he is and the way they created him to be in the film was really to be a mirror of the decaying society itself you know what i mean
0: yeah and it's interesting too because now when i watch it now with like more of an adult look at it (laughs) you're struck by something i never thought about as much as a kid watching it but it, it this actually, New York seems like where Snake should be, right? right? And you get the feeling that if he wasn't forced to be there and wasn't on this mission that he doesn't want to do, he'd actually be pretty happy there. And actually, he'd probably have the run of the place pretty quickly. Yeah. Like that, that would be his kingdom. And it really is where he belongs. And I think that's kind of interesting, too, just that you put him in his element, actually, and then uh, just force him to be, be having to work for someone else. That's the problem. You know? Right.
1: I mean, that, I think that would really be the great, almost the pitch uh, if you were to go back and like how they always kind of rumored and talked about it. If, if you were to do something like escape from Las Vegas, like how they talked about, I think you do it to the point where you put an older snake Pluskin as ba- basically being the Duke of you know, the new Duke, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And, and you could, you could introduce new characters and kind of, you know, I think that would be interesting to to see what a guy like snake has up his sleeve when he's kind of in charge of, you know, some lawlessness and whatever but yeah but in totally um i mean obviously it's just the whole thing is anchored by that awesome kurt russell doing his best clean eastwood impersonation thing but i think definitely uh kind of what some of my sentiments were blowout were uh just like you know brian de palma could have only made blowout at the time period the way he did you know with the, with kind of the the equipment that was available and where his mind was at, I think Escape from New York is another one that with the visuals and the music, and the effects like the you know the effects of the time, the way that all that blends together, uh you know Carpenter, you know like I like if John Carpenter would have you know waited ten years and made Escape from New York in 1990 or something, I don't think it would have come out visually with that level of grime and see because like they literally if people don't know they actually shot this in st louis where there was like such a terrible ghetto they actually had like a run of like a bunch of city blocks they were just allowed to just trash up and they brought in like part of a carcass of an airplane for the crash airplane sequence i mean i just i, don't, I just don't think even 10 years afterwards they would have been able to film things and made things look the way they do in this film
0: yeah, no, I th- I mean well I think that's proven by the sequel, right? Which which mm-hmm. also proves how effective this movie was. This movie was so perfect that when it came time for Carpenter to do a sequel, all I could really do was remake this one right. <laughs> almost scene by scene. And yeah. and interestingly enough, the sequel comes in nineteen ninety-six, one year before this movie takes place, which exactly. is kind of funny. But uh yeah. but yeah, I I'm not a not a huge fan of Escape from LA. That's probably a conversation for another time. Yeah. But uh but man, this but like I said, this one is just is just fantastic.
1: Yeah, I mean, Scary from L.A., um, I think probably the best thing you can say is, like, you're going to watch it to get your, your snake pliskin fixed. Yeah,
0: it's it's watchable because Snake is still great, Yeah, but that's about all you can say about it.
1: Yeah, that's about all you can say about it. And, you know, I, don't, I mean, without going down the rabbit hole, because it's another movie for another time. That movie had a lot of behind-the-scenes production problems as well. Yeah. You know, uh, effects not getting, like, literally not getting completed, period. Just, okay, throw this out. You know, Paramount really put him in a bad spot. Mm -hmm. I don't know how great it would have been to begin with, because, like you said, it pretty much is a remake of Escape from New York. But I do know that some of the the very top complaints that I always hear about that movie, I I know for a fact, are, you know, from the -the behind-the-scenes shit it really was the studio's fault
0: <laughs> yeah and it really is i mean you, you just touched on what it could be but this this is one where as much as i don't really like the second one and the, the reputation the second one has i think with in recent years with carussell kind of getting some of his badass mojo back with yeah. thanks to tarantino i really do feel like you know we've had like indiana jones come back and some of these other like you know franchises resurrected i got to imagine there's a, definitely a place for old Snake Plissken right, and <laughs> seeing yeah. Carussell pick that role up. I mean, I would be super excited about it. And, you know, Carpenter seems to be kind of rejuvenated again with this Halloween stuff that's going on. I don't know that he's looking to direct again, but if he could, like, choose a director maybe and still kind of oversee it, I mean, I, I would yeah. be all in for an old man snake movie.
1: And and you wouldn't really, because I think also a mistake that kind of happened with Escape from L.A. is you really – not only do you, not only is it not necessary, but you actually really shouldn't make it very high budget. I think. No. Yeah. I think if we had somebody, uh, you know, I don't know if Jason Blum would would be involved in in a non horror film, but if you had a producer like that, overseeing a director like I think, and I only say I think some, I actually think James Wan. If I had to pick mm-hmm. somebody to do an escape movie, that wouldn't be Carpenter. I think James Wan. If you look at some of his. Less popular movies like um, like a uh,
0: Death Sentence. Yeah, yeah. Right?
1: I can't want to say Death Wish, and I knew that was wrong. But Death Sentence with Kevin Bacon. I think he's got it in him to do something like you know, like like he's kind of catapulted into a list or whatever. But he still likes to do a small budget. I think if you, I think if you did a twenty million dollar Escape from whatever with you know, Carpenter and his son doing the score, and you had a good director like James Wan, you know, and Kurt Russell back as Snake. I mean, I don't. I don't think you would lose money on that one, and I think it would nope. be, you know, it would kind of, not necessarily right the wrongs of Escape from L.A., but it would kind of, you know, l- like in in the series on a better note, you know.
0: Yeah, yeah, I agree. I I would let's so well, you know what? Let's you and I call them up and pitch this. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm guessing they probably just haven't thought of it until now.
1: They're so. like, guys, there's this podcast out there with about 200 <laughs> listeners, <laughs> and these guys know what they're talking about. We should listen yeah. to them. No, 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 we shouldn't just uh, do a movie about a uh, ghost stuck in a cell phone. We should, we should do uh, more escape from whatever bullshit. But anyway, uh, Trev, go ahead with your. Uh, the, it's your turn to do your number three on your list.
0: Yeah. So uh, my my number three is another one that's not too shocking. This is another interesting one because it's uh, i it, it's. I mean, it's such a good film. I actually prefer the sequel, but this is still so awesome that it had to make my top five. And that's uh, Sam Raimi's The Evil Dead. Mm. Uh, so this makes my list because it really is, uh, you know, uh, I was just watching um, Eli Roth's History of Horror recently. Yeah. The, uh, yeah. the the AMC series he's been doing, uh, you know, which, you know, I I enjoy it. It's pretty much it's uh, fun it's fun. Like the way I kind of take it just to get off on a little tangent about it is you can watch it and be kind of cynical and say like, well, I'm not learning too much from this or anything. But what I liked about it is I realized as I get older that when I was younger, I would watch specials like this and it would introduce me to a lot of stuff. And I kind of look at this now as like, well, I might not be learning anything, but there's probably some like 15 year old horror fan that's watching this. And this is the first time he's hearing about a lot of these movies. So there's always a value to these every few years to make a new version. And when they got to talk about evil dead, I was actually struck by what Tarantino said about it, where he was talking about the visual style of it and how it was filmed. And he said, you know, as a young film fan, when you saw this movie, you were kind of like, well, why would you want to make a movie in any other way? Why would you want to film anything that doesn't look like The Evil Dead? And and that's what I took from this. Uh, I actually think, and I don't think I'm alone in this, I saw this series in reverse order. I saw Army of Darkness in the theater. Mm-hmm. Uh, then I well, then I went backwards and saw Evil Dead 2 and then Evil Dead. Uh, and it doesn't really matter, you know. Yeah, me too. But, uh, yeah, but uh, getting to Evil Dead was just like, oh my God, like knowing how cheap this movie was made and like, but the creativity on hand and uh, just the pure like ferocity and intensity of the of the filmmaking and like. No, I don't want to say humor because this one's not very funny, but just the way they use the camera and the effect, the effects work. I've I've never really you've I know you've gone out and filmed stuff. I never really have. But this is the kind of movie where you watch it. And you're like, why aren't I just out there with my friends making something like this? Because it right. just show it just you just the enthusiasm of the project just oozes through on uh, every in every shot. And uh you know, it's not even like, yes, this did give us uh, Ash, the Bruce Campbell character, but this is kind of like, you know, proto Ash. It's not quite right. what we know today with the character. So it's really not even about the character. It's, it's just more about how insane the gore gets in the last half of this film and how nuts the cinematography is and uh, the crazy camera angles. The uh, just I don't know, everything about this is like excessive in like the right way and even yeah when i was young and saw this it was just so so like uh exciting to see a movie like this and then yeah that's like wondering why there aren't more films like this i think only like there's some directors who have that that kind of their young their older films or you know their films they made when they are younger like sam Raby and peter jackson have this kind of energy to them that you wish they kept up throughout their career and they they never seem to <laughs> but uh but this this really speaks to that
1: no, I I agree a, a thousand percent, and I I you know the thing that always strikes me is a lot. I kind of cringe a little bit when I hear a lot of people say like, oh, you know, like like it's so it's so like you know slow or it's so basic or it's so cheap that you can just start with Evil Dead Two because it does the recap. But mm-hmm. I mean the recaps are cool the way they re you mm-hmm. know parts two and three. I mean don't get me wrong, but like I I think this film. Like, let's just take it out of the franchise. Just as one horror movie itself. I think it has a lot of charm. I honestly do. Mm-hmm. And, like, I mean, just, like, you know, the the stop-motion shots that are in it. They're, like, they're just... It's so fun. And one of my, actually, favorite... um scenes of the movie isn't even the crazy horror stuff at all there's just something uh like the charm of uh kids making a movie part of like when they're in the car just driving up to the cabin in the beginning like i really like that scene just getting Mm -hmm. and i really like the actors which when they do the recaps uh in the next movies in parts two and three like they don't they don't use all the same actors and stuff so like i mean just for the, the whatever shits and giggles of it, like, I'm all down well, to see Scotty or whatever his name was. Yeah, I mean, you know not, I was
0: mean? going to say, not only do they not use the, some of the actors, they just dump some of these characters and right, act like they right. weren't there, so, yeah.
1: Because isn't the, like, the most famous, or, well, I say, I should say originally one of the most famous things about the original Evil Dead is, like, the tree rape and, like, mm-hmm. um, was that Ellen Sandweiss? Is that her name? Yep. I don't even think that character's in the recaps, is she?
0: No, well, she's not. It's it's interesting because, you know, we want to get into like an odd continuity thing. The the recap of Evil Dead and Evil Dead 2 acts like it was just Ash and Linda who came into the cabin. Yeah. But then when you get to Ash versus Evil Dead, the show, uh, they do kind of uh, once again come back to Cheryl having have being there with him, his sister and dying. So it's like, wait, what? I thought you were dumping that out. So right. who knows? You know, continuity is like a real non-issue in Evil Dead. Yeah. Uh, so whatever, but, but yeah, I mean, I, am with you. I, I do like them two better to Evil dead two is my favorite of the franchise, yeah, but I, but I don't think it's fair to like take this one out because it is still a blast. And I, I've seen this, uh, just a few years ago in a theater and it's, uh, you know, with a, we did like a Halloween air time you know, kind of midnight showing and it still plays like gangbusters to an audience. It's just, it's just so fun. And, uh, I can't even imagine someone saying it's slow. I mean, yeah, it takes a bit to get going, but yeah there's always even in that early in that early section though there is just a sense of dread that hangs over it that yeah. i think makes it feel like you know even when there's not blood being tossed at you you're still waiting for something bad to happen and it, and like you said it is still interesting and compelling
1: yeah and just and i think a big big part of that is just the i mean you can feel it when you watch the, the whole kind of nuts and bolts thing of, like you can tell that cabin is not a set, it's not fake, it's not phony, mm-hmm. you know. You can tell that these are real people, you know. It's a it's a little bit of, in terms of the actors, I feel like it's a little bit almost more of the George Romero approach of using people that feel very real, And you know.
0: Yeah, and it's even interesting, too. I mean, even something as simple as, you know, some of the bigger, crazier moments in it because, you know, you have to uh, basically chop the deadites into pieces to, to defeat them, so there's a lot of that. Yeah. And and then we just think of horror in general and some of the most infamous horror mo- moments in terms of the biggest kills, and yet something in this like a pencil being stabbed into someone's foot is still right. one of the most like memorable, cringeworthy moments in any horror film.
1: Yeah, I, I mean it. It definitely you know be, even before uh, part two came out, uh, it definitely it you know it definitely had its cult reputation. I remember always seeing either at video stores or seeing the poster around. And, uh, yeah, it is kind of a shame that, you know, so much, uh, you know, I guess with parts two and three and then the TV series and then the remake obviously as well, but it's like, it it is, you know, even the remakes not truly a remake of this film, so like, Yeah, like anybody who thinks the original film is not like mandatory viewing for whatever reason, I think they're really missing out because, yeah, because for whatever reason, if you had to make a top 25 horror movies of all time, you know, not, not in not counting two and three, I think. I think this still would show up on a lot of people's top twenty five horror list of all time. You know. Mm-hmm. Like and, and I I love just the whole grueling terror tagline. I mean, I I think yeah. it fits the film perfectly, you know.
0: And if you're a genre fan, it is nice to go back and visit a baby faced Bruce Campbell who is uh yeah you know, the Bruce Campbell before Bruce Campbell got a little too full of himself and maybe bought into the Bruce Campbell image a little bit. (laughs) And, you know, I, I, look, I, I love him. He's, he'll always be, uh, he'll he'll always mean something to me, but, uh, you know, he, he is what he is nowadays. And (laughs) that's a discussion to be had another time. (laughs) So, so yeah, so
1: you will, we love it. So I'm going to move on to my number two film. And, um, this is a movie that almost, for some reason, when I was going through the list, I almost left it off just because I didn't see it. But this is a movie that really, I do think it's an excellent film, but I have to say it really rated this high on my list because of the rewatchability. And I've, this is a film I've never heard anybody say that's infinitely rewatchable, but I think it is. So I'm going with the, uh, the film Taps. and I oh, feel, yeah. yeah, I feel like this movie was really regarded as an excellent movie for a long time. Um, because it had so much great uh, young talent in it. Uh, the main leads are uh, Timothy Hutton and Sean Penn, very early in their careers, and then the debut of Tom Cruise as well, who I think is excellent in it. Um, just really great, and 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 it's not only is it I think it's really great because it's not just like a kind of average movie that has a bunch of you know George C. Scott's also in it playing the headmaster of the school. But I think it's something that, to me, stands the test of time and is actually really relevant today. Because basically, the setup of it is, is it, it's a military academy where they like really drill into these, and you have kids all the way from I would say roughly age ten to age eighteen at this school. And Timothy Hutton and um, Sean Penn are kind of the elder uh, kids at the school, and you know it's it's very much a military um, hierarchy. They really train them like soldiers. Uh, they really instill the military mindset, um, you know, just about honor and valor and whatnot. And basically, yeah, it comes down to it. It, it turns out they're basically like going to close the school and stuff. And basically the students decide to take a stand and basically, you know kind of take the the school itself hostage just in terms of they barricade the school, they actually have real weapons that they normally use in drills and whatever. I mean, it just... And it's what I love about it and why I think all these guys shine in it is, like, it totally kind of uh, asks the question and, uh, with you know, without spoiling too much of what happens, like, the film gets fairly shockingly violent towards the end and, um really what it questions is you know when you put this mindset which uh you know just military training it gets you in a certain set of mind when you when you set that up into very young minds like what are you really doing and uh you know are you you know it, it it's hard to tell a, it's hard to tell uh a, a kid basically yeah we we instilled all these values and all these principles into you but that doesn't really matter because in real life, there's such things as bureaucracy and you know financial decisions and whatever. So I mean, I just think this movie's like really, really electric in a way of just like and it totally that you know even from the beginning, once you see the students planning what they're going to do, and it, you know things go wrong and go wrong, and next thing you know, the police are surrounding the school, and you got. Literally twelve-year-old kids with automatic weapons pointing them at police, like it's it's a movie for a lot of uncomfortable reasons. I don't think you could really make today either, but I just just as a drama and it's just like as you know somewhat of a shocker and just like and when I say a shocker, I don't mean like an exploitive way, but I don't know. I think I think if you watch this movie, it it will get you thinking in a lot of ways, and uh, you know just and again acting top-notch so i definitely recommend taps to anybody who hasn't seen it because yeah it's a 1981 film but like literally this could happen tomorrow it's very believable that it could happen tomorrow so i give it a a really super high recommendation and it's a movie i've owned on uh dvd for a number of years uh blu-ray now and uh yeah like it's a movie i could literally watch every single year and just never get tired of it
0: yeah, man, hearing you talk about it, it has me really itching to like revisit it because it's a film that I, I do remember enjoying, but I don't think I've watched since maybe like the mid 90s. It's yeah. been a it's been a really long time for me. Um, but yeah, I remember really, you know, being kind of taken with the performances or Sean Penn being really, really good in it. Um and just like, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. There's something about that time period, I guess in my head, I, I had to stop. And I'm realizing these are still these are kind of spaced out over time. But, you know, you and I did the chocolate war as like a commentary right. on here. And then, you know, there's film like taps. And then you go into like probably like 90 or 91, you get toy soldiers. And there's just like this, like, uh, I don't know. People loved movies about all boy, like, you know, <laughs> yeah, all male academies at that time. And like the horrible stuff that can happen at them. But uh but yeah, Taps is it was quite good. I mean, I I can't speak to it too much just because my memory is hazy. But I do remember really enjoying it, and now you, you have me wanting to revisit it for sure.
1: I mean, I really I really think you should, and it's it's the type of movie I think if if you uh, if you try to kind of hard sell it to somebody who's never seen it before, like I just think it's going to be hard for people to wrap their mind around how that a movie that is about that subject matter could be really powerful. But when you watch it and you see kind of like how somber and sober it is, and how you know it's just yeah, it's it's really good. So I hope you do give it a rewatch here, you know, sometime.
0: Or I'll just wait for the remake.
1: <laughs> Don't wait for the remake <laughs> because it's never coming. <laughs> no,
0: he's not gonna do like a uh, what Zac Efron led remake or something. Oh, that
1: would be awful. And, 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 and you know, it, it's um, you know, speaking of nostalgic terms, I really do think it's one of those things that even if you use the same script everything I don't know if you could quite capture lightning in a bottle again because I think it is um you know I love Timothy Hutton I think he's done a lot of cool movies but his early work I think is some of his finest work which is amazing because he was probably about I think he was like about 20 years old when they made this movie Sean Penn I mean you watch him in this movie and he doesn't even have like the biggest part he's kind of like the second lead of the movie but he Mm. um you know, um, he just, I don't know, he just stands out. You can tell what he was going to become. Uh, Cruz has a smaller role, but it's a very electric role where you're like, holy shit, I, like like literally he got cast in a bunch more movies, his his big movies that you know him for because of this, and also it's like, um I just forgot, I'm pretty sure, yeah, Giancarlo Esposito is in it as one of the kids, too. so I mean, it just... i mean forget about it's ridiculous ton of talent everywhere okay
0: you say it couldn't be remade but what let me pitch something to you okay (laughs) what about taps the weekly series on the cw
1: (sighs) could it work (laughs) yeah i don't know know. i'd
0: love to see how they would have to fit like the female characters in in some way um yeah, no, I, and to, to, you know, that's obviously just a joke. Don't, yeah, don't, I know. don't, write us angry letters. I'm kidding people. Yeah. I do not want taps on CW, but, uh, to go back, just piggyback on something you said just really briefly, um, in terms of Timothy Hutton, shout out to Timothy Hutton, having kind of a late, uh, you know, late career resurgence recently. And, uh, man, one of the highlights of, uh, the haunting of Hill house on Netflix, he's so good in that. Yeah, And it was it was really exciting to see. And then he was also featured in a smaller part, but still, you know, significant enough. He's in the, um, the Jack Ryan show on Amazon and it was kind of exciting for me to see Timothy Hutton in those two shows that I watched in streaming services and just because there was a period there where he kind of vanished a little bit and I always yeah. thought that was disappointing because I'm, I'm like you and that I like Timothy Hutton and I really felt like uh there was a period where I was like how come this guy isn't in more stuff like like even in films I'm not a huge fan of like you know I'm not the biggest fan of the dark half but I think right. he's really good in it and uh yeah it's cool to see him kind of coming back now and I, I hope that continues and he gets some more work off of hill house because he's he's really really good in that
1: yeah him and uh henry thomas are one of the main reasons i'm definitely am going to check that show out and probably sooner than later oh, man,
0: and you, you know they play the same character right and uh
1: yeah yeah which, which i'll tell which you what I, man I, which i because henry thomas is not a young man <laughs>
0: <laughs> you no know? it's it, it that is kind of weird like it yeah. doesn't uh it is true that i don't think once you get to a certain age you do your appearance doesn't change that much as you right. age but but whatever i i will say though that that's always a crap shoot when you do the thing in movies where you cast a young actor and then you cast the older person for the flash forward or whatever and it, right. you know in a lot of cases it doesn't really look like that person would grow into that but man when you watch hill house you'll have to confirm this to me that might be the best example of that i've ever seen because i Henry Thomas could definitely age into uh, uh, Timothy Hutton. It's, it's pretty perfect. And I don't know if like, I don't know if they were watching each other's performance or what, but even just mannerisms and everything, it's dead on. So, yeah, so credit I mean, to credit to the casting and credit to both of them.
1: Yeah. They're both excellent. And uh, yeah, I, I, I think, and I'm happy because I, for some reason I had blanked out or didn't realize he was in the Jack Ryan thing. I th- I think it, th- there was like a long period of time you know, and it's just like some actors bring a certain something to their acting. Sometimes, especially actors, uh, I think like Timothy Hutton, he can bring a certain uh, sense of measuredness and vulnerability to his roles. And I feel like for a long time they didn't quite know, or maybe just sign of the times so type thing. There, maybe there wasn't a lot of parts for him like that. Mm-hmm. And, um,. You know, and I definitely enjoyed his fun kind of late '90s era when he got to do some fun kind of gangsterish stuff like City of Industry and Playing God. But uh, yeah, just just you know, it, and that is one good thing I think with these um, this abundance of TV now that's really interested in being in depth and character based is I think it actually this is going to be a very good time for actors like Timothy Hutton and Henry mm-hmm. Thomas and you know. I mean, even even Sean Penn has a, a Hulu show on. So, I mean, I, I think a lot of these deep actors who mainly don't fit into the modern, you know, big studio release type films, I think they definitely can, you know, find their way into these TV shows where it's like, because now it's really not, you know, actor star power hasn't really been a big deal the way it used to be in the past. And now it's kind of like, if you were somebody famous for basically not just being a star, but being actually a really good actor, I, I think like, like they kind of need you now. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah. All right, cool. So uh, let me tell my number two, and this is the one that maybe it'll be surprising to you. I don't know, to others because everything else on here, I feel like I said, you know, were like the obvious choices. This one's maybe a bit more of a deep cut, although I think in the last few years it started to get more and more of a reputation in, in genre circles at least and this is actually a French German film uh, from nineteen from nineteen eighty one obviously uh, this is possession the Andre Zulaski film uh, starring uh, Sam Neill and Isabella Jani uh, this is a movie that actually Bird, our our good buddy Bird, occasional grave digger here as well, yeah. uh, intru- introduced me to when him and I first started hanging out and being became friends. I I'd, I think I'd kind of maybe vaguely heard of it, but I wasn't too familiar and. I remember him saying, like, dude, I have to show you this movie. It's going to be one of your favorites. And I was like, oh, all right, whatever. And sure enough, the first time he showed it to me, I was like, you know what? That's one of my all-time favorites. Can't deny it. <laughs> uh, it was pretty instantaneous. And uh, I've revisited it a lot since then. It's, it's one of those films that I love to introduce people to. And that's the great thing about these kind of films. When you have a favorite that's not as well-known, you get to be the person who shows it to people for the first time. Uh, this is a very strange film, psychological horror about a couple, the Sam Neill is a spy who is coming back home uh, after being on a what seems to be a long mission. He's returning to his wife and, and young child. And there's this just instantaneous coldness between him and his wife, played by Isabella Gianni, in, a, in an amazing performance. Um, and there's just something obviously off about the relationship. And he starts becoming really suspicious of her and wondering why this like disconnect seems to exist. And he starts to suspect that she's cheating on him. And, uh, boy, it's hard to even talk about this film because I don't want to spoil too much. Right. But you just kind of stick with it, and it, it's eventually revealed what is happening in their, in their marriage. And, uh, I mean, I'm not going to spoil too much, but you definitely eventually get into some, uh, you know, supernatural kind of creature kind of elements that are very unexpected. Uh, and it ends up being a lot gooier of a movie than you might expect. Um, but it's also, like... I'm saying this, it's not a dumb B-movie. It's actually a very kind of deep, uh, you know, heady film about relationships. Zulowski himself uh, did this movie after going through like a very painful divorce. And this is kind of his response to that. And it's just a very, uh, a, it's a very brutal film in ways. Um, and if nothing else, you have to see it for Johnny's performance, which is one of the all-time uh actress performances in a horror film and even uh, sam neill is giving a very strange performance in this but i find it very captivating he plays everything very overly theatric and i i have never seen him do another performance like this but i really i love it and I, I i think we don't talk often enough about how sam neill is a real big mvp of genre no he's great like it's man. people people like samuel but we don't talk like you know th- this and uh you know even something like uh well Van horizon and in the mouth of madness yeah. and uh why am i blanking on the one with him and billy zane on the boat uh oh
1: dead
0: calm dead calm thank you uh yeah so yeah it's a lot of great genre stuff that you know so uh and this is probably my favorite of that bunch so definitely if you haven't seen possession which i'm guessing a lot of our listeners haven't track it down uh prepare prepare to have your mind blown because it will be and uh yeah you're welcome
1: (laughs) Yeah, I need to make time for I, I I acquired a copy of this actually from Jelly like a year, maybe two years ago, maybe probably more like a year and a half ago. Um, he had bought a Region B copy that ended up he couldn't play. So he pretty much just gave it to me, and then, then I gave him a couple movies too that I had an extra copy of. And so I've had this sitting on the and and like where it is on my Blu-ray shelf, it's always poking out. And like, unfortunately, I don't know why, but between streaming and renting movies and going to the theater i don't make that much time to get through all the stuff that i have in my own personal collection even though i keep buying and buying movies and Mm -hmm. uh yeah i i need to watch the shit out of this it's long overdue because i'd never especially in our little mini circle of uh film friends uh i've never seen anybody not give this movie a glowing recommendation you know what i mean
0: yeah no it's it's pretty amazing and i think i think you will love it and i think the kind of people who listen to a show like this will love it it's just something that it's not for every audience for but for people who have an interest in in horror film or just cinema in general because it's it is so interesting and it is a film to be to be kind of pulled apart and analyzed afterwards it's not a film with easy answers uh so it, it offers you a lot for rewatches and just for mulling it over afterwards too and i think and i think everybody will be taken by the performances so awesome
1: so, we're coming down the home stretch of the top five here. Number one, I'm uh, again just rewatchability. Watch this movie a million times. Uh, can't get enough of it. Love it. Um, and I think a lot of it just has to do with not only the awesome special effects in it, but just the fun, kind of poppy hilarious direction and it number one on my list actually is an American werewolf in London.
0: Um, okay. That's that. Uh, well, that's obviously the one I was talking about earlier. Exactly, I, it, <laughs> it pained me to not have this on here, but yeah, I'm glad, I'm glad it's your number one then.
1: Yeah. And it's just one of those things where it's just, I, and let me tell you, it was hard. Not also another one that kept creeping on my list was the howling. And although I kind of do just overall enjoy this movie more than the howling, I really like the howling a lot. Like, I think there's certain sequences in the howling that are just like executed to perfection. I
0: agree with you. I kind of, I to this day kind of go back and forth on which one I like more. And I think it's always a question of I always, I'm always aware that this is American Wild is the better film. Right. But there are periods where I think like howling is maybe more fun and like more rewatchable but i mean whatever that's who cares they're both great so what it's an easy debate you know because it's like there's no wrong answer
1: but this this film american world from london always gets my blood pumping because i love the beginning i love when they're on the moors and all that i love the attack scene you know you kind of have your story block chunk of the movie where you know the uh the character uh you know develops his relationship with the nurse and he kind of very very similar to a lot of modern movies too like things like you know like Venom or Upgrade or whatever where you have like this character who's like learning about this thing that he's going through and you know it's this prolonged period of uh this this uh affliction that he has but really just for me like I just I don't know I just I just love the way the film uh, wraps up with the final rampage and it just always you know kind of like Leaves me on a high note when the film ends on, uh, you know, it's kind of such a downbeat ending. But you have that fun poppy direction by John Landis, where, you know, it kind of ends on such a dour note, and then you get the credits with the, uh, you know, the the fun kind of poppy version of was it Blue Moon? It's like, you know, the blue moon. Like,
0: well, of course, like there's that thing where every song in the movie has moon in the title.
1: Right. Yeah. And it just it's just one of those things where like i don't know there's just certain there's just certain movies that just make me pop big as a fanboy than just like when you put a combination you know the scene where the the weird nazi werewolf zombies invade and murder the family there's just certain combinations of weird things that if a director does in a movie it just like fucking drives me crazy as a film fan you know And, and this movie definitely has many set pieces that are like that and you know, it's just one of those movies. No matter how many times I rewatch it, and how you know, over the years I rewatch it, like my opinion of it never like dips at all. You know, it's never like, oh, you watch this, and you're like, oh, this isn't as good as I remember. Like, it just, it always hits the exact same notes every single time I watch it. So, yeah, definitely always going to be a huge supporter of American Werewolf in London.
0: Yeah, and Jenny are very hot. In this oh as well.
1: yes, right. to the point um... where, where it's just like. <laughs> It blows my mind now because it's like, this is the lady that's going to show up in Captain America Winter Soldier. (laughs) (laughs) Uh,
0: You know, I always think what I find interesting about this film is um, there's an element of it that I'm surprised wasn't picked up on and used in more films following this. Because there's often talk about how, you know, because these are, you know... These supernatural creatures are fictional. Sorry, folks. Uh, <laughs> the mythology has a lot of play, and you can kind of you know evolve and add on to it over time. Yeah. And we see that happen to where you know like Romero creates the living dead version of zombies, and then those become like the kind of zombie that is right. very apparent in films. And and again, watching the Eli Roth thing, they're talking about how like you know werewolves were certainly a part of mythology for a long time, but a lot of what we know of the werewolf uh, comes from the Wolf Man, what, what Kurt Samodiac added in with right. in, with his script, like the silver. And, and, you know, the gypsy curse elements and everything. And I thought one of the most brilliant inventions to the werewolf mythos comes from this movie. And that's the idea of being haunted by the ghosts of your victims. Yeah. And I, and I love that. Like the Griffin Dunn stuff is great. It's one of the highlights of the film. And uh, I, because, you know, you always sell the werewolf thing as a curse. And I just thought that was such a great addition that you have these mangled corpses following you around kind of just like making your life hell because you murdered them. And I really wish more films had, had picked up on that. So.
1: Yeah, one of the great scenes is when... uh, And I just love the long shot from, like, across the street where, uh, you know, because you said the, the, the Griffin Dunn character, his friend... Um, keeps coming back to him and talking to him, and he keeps getting more and more rotted and whatever. And I just love the long creepy shot of like from across the street where he's waving him into the porno theater to like come <laughs> talk to him. I don't know why. And then it's just great once he gets in the theater. I think it's just all like a puppet at that point. Mm-hmm. But it just yeah, this is that movie. That movie just has the combination of things, you know, the effects, the story, the directing, the editing, the music. Just it it just never gets freaking old to me. I always love it. Yeah
0: and i'm not typically uh i don't know where you fall on this but i'm not typically a fan of werewolves that just become kind of dogs i always right. like wolf wolf men but the design yeah. of this one is so oh, scary yeah. it's so great yeah, that yeah the face the
1: yeah. face totally makes it for me you know mm-hmm. and i and I love the way it moves and it's obviously some type of animatronic whatever but just yeah and the, and the fact that it goes on a rampage in the middle of like piccadilly square or wherever it is uh just yeah it just i don't know it just this, this movie is so memorable to me in so many ways
0: it kills bib for tuna on this on the subway platform
1: oh it really The oh yeah, the, the, the kind of tall big, skinny guy yeah that's yeah. Bib for tuna i never knew that i know. Yeah. uh
0: so when we do our 1997 episode of this where do you think an american werewolf in paris is going to fall in your top five
1: i mean i don't like to do like spoilers for upcoming episodes but i mean i'm probably that's going to be number one as well <laughs> Yeah. Because, <laughs> I mean, the stuff they were doing in Microsoft Paint. In <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yep. All right.
0: Uh, so my my number one is uh, it, my my reasons for this are going to be very similar to my reasons for Evil Dead in terms of just, again, uh, another film I find infinitely rewatchable, a film when I initially got it on – well, I think I had it on Laserdisc and then on DVD. It's something I rewatched a lot and it, it is about the, it just like evil dead. It's about that bringing a new kind of visual style to something and just kind of reinventing the genre. And so if you will dead did it for horror, this film did it for action and this would be, well, depending where you live, uh, it might be Mad Max two to you, or it might just be the road warrior. Yeah. Uh, God damn, this is a great action film. And, uh, you know, uh, I, I while well, this controversial statement and the goat and I could have an argument, it might not be my favorite Mad Max film anymore. Uh-oh. But I know. I'll just leave it there. But <laughs> for what it is,
1: it's Trevor still... are you trolling me? <laughs> I'm not trolling,
0: but okay. it's definitely look, I'll just say this, it's the it's the it's the highlight of the Mel Gibson era of Mad Max.
1: Okay, I can live with and,
0: that. Yeah, and uh it's it's just so great. And it's like, you know, plot wise, simplicity itself, very, very sparse on plot, but just man, all style. And just like the Snake Plissken thing, just a great badass performance from Mel Gibson. This is really the film that sets Mad Max as what we know it into place. You know, like I I enjoy Mad Max, the first one. But when you go back and watch it, it's actually kind of interesting how it's not really what we think of for the franchise. It's not necessarily a post-apocalyptic movie. It's really just kind of a more traditional revenge film in a kind of, you know, slightly lawless society. But this really puts into place everything that not only became Mad Max, but became hundreds of imitators after this um especially from italy man italy went mad max crazy Um, but yeah just the the like the way everyone looks is memorable and the action scenes Uh, george miller just god definitely one of the most interesting directors of all time right if you look at his filmography and just the the variance of what he did because he could go from making something like this to babe to witches of eastwick um, you know just this strange strange variety but man when he sets his when he sets his sights on directing action in a way that he wants to like, kind of reinvent the genre the way they're putting cameras just strapping them onto these cars and just you know driving super fast no regard for the safety of his stuntmen oh. uh some of the some of the most amazing chase sequences and crashes you'll ever see on film and, uh, yeah, I mean, I could, I could just keep saying all this crap, but you all know it's just, it's just one of the best like sci-fi action films of all time. And I just think because, I think it's so rewatchable because you don't get bogged down in like the story or anything. You just strap in and go for the ride every single time and, and what a ride it is.
1: Yeah. And it just, I mean, it's, I can't even tell you from, um, like a pop culture standpoint, how much it really influenced like so much it was you know it was like one of those movies where not like usually movies have kind of like an iconic scene that get parodied and everything whereas like Mm -hmm. like this movie you know they get reflected out into other things this movie just really just basically the 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 world building the setting that it was set in the atmosphere was the thing that was referenced i mean you know like like you know mad max the like you know the the kind of that that post-apocalyptic 80s style of punk rocker looking bad guy and just over Mm -hmm. the top shit i mean we could you know from anything to weird science to something like bellflower i mean i think the road warriors definitely uh you know, and not only just on, like, B-movies, but also movies that came after, you know, like like higher budget action movies or whatever. I, I think this movie is a lot more f- influential as people give it credit. Because, you know, a lot of times people say, oh, Mad Max this, Mad Max that. But what they really mean is The Road Warrior.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But, uh, yeah. I mean, it just... I mean, for me personally, just for my personal money, I don't think... The series, while well, the rest of the movies were very enjoyable, I I personally don't think that this movie was really topped in, mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. So I mean, yeah, it's definitely my favorite of the series. And
0: yeah, that's fair enough. I mean, it's I, I I prefer I do prefer Fury Road, but it's such a slight, you know, like yeah. one over the other that I it's again it's one of those debates where I'm like, yeah, I'm I'm not gonna come in and argue with you too much about that. So
1: yeah the the just the impact that uh this and maybe that's just it for me too just the impact that this you know we always say with something like uh like a halloween or something we always say well the original is always the best because that's when it was fresh and original and even mm-hmm. though this is mad max 2 basically because it is like quite different from the you know original mad max film like this was the one that kind of smacked you in the face and brought the whole world alive and hit you you know, the apex of just that whole post-apocalyptic. I mean, when, whenever anybody says the term post, post-apocalyptic post film, I always think of the road war like straight off the bat, you know what I
0: mean? Yeah. And I think that's what they're thinking of too. When they say it, like this, yeah. this really set in, this really did set the visual and just thematic and, and mood piece template of that. Uh, so you definitely see this like recreated a lot after this one. And it's interesting like this, I don't know that it happens much anymore where like, there's one film that leads to a sequel and then the sequel really kind of completely reinvents the thing and becomes what that franchise is. Right. And I think like another example, that would be first blood going into uh, yeah Rambo, you know, yeah. but this is like another definite example that, like you said, like Mad Max is a cool movie, but this is what people are talking about when they talk about the series.
1: Yeah, I agree. So, um, what, you know, n- not obviously, uh, Fury Road or Beyond Thunderdome, but outside of what, what movie do you think stole from the road warrior and did it the best Trev?
0: Oof, the best. I mean, I don't know. That's tough. Um, hmm. You know, I don't know about best. I, I think there's a lot that aren't very good that I actually do like. Uh, yeah. and I, we, cause I, I talk about that, like, like I'm saying those, uh, those eighties films, you know, like I like the goofy, uh, Enzo Castellari stuff, like the Bronx Warriors and, you know, like uh, crap like that. Um, New Barbarians <laughs> movies yeah. like those are just b- really bizarre. And he said usually like the where you feel that the the copying is the the visual style of the villains always have that kind of like punk look. Yeah. But So I I, I just I'll kind of watch any movie that's a Mad Max ripoff and usually get some kind of enjoyment from it. I might roll my eyes quite a bit at how much of a ripoff it All is, right. but but it's it's kind of like that zombie movie thing where I'll still probably find a bad one enjoyable on some level.
1: Yeah, I, I think as far as like the more recent ones or whatever, um, you know, not talking about like the direct straight ripoffs. But I thought one movie that kind of...
0: Oh, I think I know what you might say. Are you gonna? say uh, well, let me take a guess. Yeah, if you're a going guess. like into a more modern recent era. Are you gonna yeah. say Doomsday?
1: Correct, Amanda. Yep. I, Yeah, I mean, I think Neil Marshall definitely also played a heavy influence to Mm -hmm. John Carpenter. But I think really the third act of Doomsday does a really nice job of, kind, you know, that was years and years before we ever thought Fury Road could be a possibility, you know. Yeah. And I think that did a nice job of kind of bringing that, you know, that kind of Road Warrior-esque villain and kind of Final Chase together, you know.
0: Yeah. Well, and as much as I do love Mel Gibson as Mad Max, I mean, it's kind of nice to have Runa Mitra to look at too, you know. So, uh,
1: we need to we need to bring her back and raise her profile. She's still working, but I feel like she should have been bigger than what she was, honestly. Mm-hmm. I think she, you know, she had a few A-list pictures um where she was kind of like the action lead and I I thought she did a great job.
0: Um Yeah, did you ever see uh Highwaymen?
1: Oh yeah. Yeah, just just yeah. actually rewatched it um maybe two months ago yeah yeah that's
0: a pr- that's a pretty fun underrated movie I yeah
1: think. it really is yeah
0: um but yeah she just she just had like a kind of multi-episode arc on supergirl and you're right. like it was right. my it was i kind of had forgotten about her and it was a nice being reminded of like oh yeah like i i like her and i haven't seen her in a while and i agree it would be nice if she could uh get a little bit of a little re- resurgence going
1: i agree and i mean it's not like she's you know, somebody who was in their heyday 20 years ago. She's still fairly young. she's yeah,
0: 42. Only I just looked. Yeah,
1: yeah she could, I, I believe she um, could really do still action roles or whatever. I think Doomsday was probably her showcase, is like really, you know, but I also like the uh, underworld film she did and stuff. So yeah. Ronometra, give us a call. We'll try to resurrect your career for you.
0: Yeah, or just give us a call. I yeah, just know. give <laughs> us a call.
1: We want to talk to you. Why not? Yeah. So yeah, so I th- I think we hit on some good ones but uh like we said, I think we got to do that that horror spin-off 1981 horror films cause,
0: yeah, there's still there's definitely a lot of films I did not get a chance to talk about here, yeah, which is
1: too too much meat left on the table for sure. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so before we kick it off, you know, I always like to uh, you know, like we did with the last one, I think this is kind of fun to list a movie from that year that you haven't seen. But either you always wanted to, or maybe you just recently found out about a want to. And, and this one was um, a movie for me. I really had no real knowledge of um, until I was kind of looking at the list for that year, and it looked interesting. I'm actually Trevor, I'm going to go with the pursuit of DB Cooper. Mm, Starting yeah. Treat Williams as DB Cooper and Robert Duvall. I think is uh, you know the guy ahead of the uh, you know. The investigation And the reason I really, you know, D.B. Cooper is kind of one of those, like, I mean, it's kind of like an urban legend, but it's really not an urban legend because it really did happen. It's a guy who hijacked mm-hmm. an airplane, uh, demanded a ransom. He got the ransom. The plane took off again, and then he jumped out. And there, to this day, there's, like, a lot of people who claim that there's no possible way he could have survived, let alone, you know, whatever. But but there's been, I actually watched a documentary not too long ago, believe it or not, about it. Um, just something I was flipping through on cable and caught a good chunk of. But it's just a fascinating case. And uh, just reading the synopsis of this one, it actually kind of gives you the identity of db cooper which i which has never really been validated so i don't know how true this movie could really be based on because we don't really know the real story of really who db cooper was and what happened afterwards but it sounds like it really kind of dramatizes um you know what happened afterwards and supposedly some accomplices he had so like and just the thought that treat williams who keep in mind the year before in 1980 was literally just an extra in empire strikes back you know that he was the a year later he was playing the lead in this film about db cooper i found that interesting and i was like well it's got to be halfway decent if it's got robert duvall in it so yeah i don't know if it's out on dvd or whatever i got to do that research but i actually really am curious now about the pursuit of db cooper
0: yeah i mean i I agree with you the, the d b cooper story is one that's always interested me um it's kind of known more today it's it's often brought into like different pop culture avenues where people yeah. love to have characters who were revealed to be d b cooper uh, I know that was like a an ongoing joke in news radio and uh justified a show I really like eventually revealed one of the, its characters was d b cooper wow. um so it kind of keeps popping back up that way. Uh, I believe last year, David Ducotto made a film called D.B. Cooper versus Bigfoot. <laughs>
1: yeah, 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 I didn't realize that was a Ducout and a David Ducotto joint, but I did yeah, see that. Probably that not D. the most surprising
0: Co- revelation no, to no. find out. Yeah, um, when,
1: when I first moved to California, in Burbank, California, obviously it's long gone, but there was a... Um, like a DVD and CD store that I thought was very cool called D.B. Cooper, D.B. Cooper stash. D. B. Cooper stash. And yeah. Yeah. I think like, like since that's long defunct, if I ever opened up a store like that, I think I would call my store that. as well.
0: <laughs> uh, so uh, mine is, I'm going to, I'm going to go on a limb goat. I'm going to say that I'm, I'm going to guess you've seen this. Okay. Um, Cause it's a it kind of film that is shocking to me. I haven't seen and I think it's one that I was always initially aware or always aware of when I was younger. And maybe I was just like, yeah, I'll get around to it. And then I kind of forgot about it for a long time. And then doing this, I was looking over the list and it popped out at me. as like, oh, yeah, I never saw that. And I would definitely be interested in it. And that is uh, Outland starring Sean Connery. Yeah. Uh, have you seen this?
1: Yeah, I have. It's been a million years, but I have seen okay. it actually. Yeah, yeah.
0: so it's, it's like a bizarre. I mean, I don't. I don't know if it's bizarre. I haven't seen it, but it just seems like it would be like the right kind of bizarre. Uh, it's like a, uh, a retelling of High Noon on right. uh, one of the moons of Jupiter where Sean Connery plays a, uh, looks like a federal marshal who is sent to like a mining outpost there and ends up getting involved in this whole kind of crazy sci-fi stuff. And I don't know, I watched the trailer and it looked like the right kind of, you know, 80s sci-fi fun. The trailer ends with a guy's head uh, exploding, okay. so I thought that's pretty cool. Um, and, you know, Sean Connery might not be the most likable person in real life, but... Uh, oh, so <laughs> I, I find him to be a compelling screen presence. And, uh, you know, like when I like when he plays, these kind of badass characters. So, uh, yeah, I feel like I should probably get around to checking out Outland. It seems like I'm kind of even just looking at it as like, you know, a Sean Connery sci-fi action movie set on a moon of Jupiter i'm kind of surprised this isn't maybe more of a cult film nowadays that you oh know, it's yeah. something i kind of forgot about and it's you know feels like something that would have that kind of following but
1: especially in the atmosphere we kind of live in now where um, we have a lot of just even popular podcasts that you know reflect on uh, past movies cult movies what have you I'll tell you, everybody's got this giant Zardo's boner, but yeah, yeah, like Outland, and Outland is like the one movie, like, I think I eventually caught it like on cable or satellite, like a long, I mean, it was like years after it came out or whatever, but that was one that always I saw a million times in every single video store. I saw, I saw the VHS tape of Outland, and like, I always kind of, in my weird mind, I kind of categorize it as, um, being in this weird category of pet stars a little bit past their heyday like not in terms of talent or anything but just careers I always put it Outland and then Saturn 3 which had Kirk Douglas I believe in it like they're just these weird movies you always saw in the video store that had like a really big star in them but it's just like this weird like sci-fi thing where it's like somebody was doing coke and was just like what if we do this and we do it in outer space you know what i mean <laughs> like <laughs> but yeah and uh, yeah because outland's actually directed by uh peter hyams too yeah so i mean mm-hmm. you're i mean peter hyams has had some wacky movies don't get me wrong but um but i don't know there's just some about him he, he always does kind of stuff that you know traditional like you know, in this case science fiction western but he does he usually puts like Kind of a unique spin on it from his films that I've seen.
0: He's one of those good. He's like one of the one of the good examples of a journeyman director, right? right? Like, yeah. there's no, there's no. You're never like, oh, I can't wait to see the new Peter Hyams movie, no. but uh, but you usually feel like you're at least in capable hands when he's behind the camera making something, right? And he just said sometimes it goes off, sometimes he makes an end of days or something, but you know, he also makes Time Cop, you know, so exactly, that's, yeah,
1: you know, and, I, and and then he made. <laughs> movie relic
0: yeah well like i said you know which
1: which (laughs) by the way i own relic on blu-ray i enjoy the movie i enjoy the novelty of seeing tom sizemore uh, star in a movie you listen Mm -hmm. to the commentary because because relic is a bizarrely dark movie and i don't mean in terms of subject matter i mean in terms of there's nothing you can see on the screen <laughs> so it's like tom sizemore goes to like in the middle of the day to visit i think it was penelope miller in that movie penelope oh miller. yeah man i haven't thought about her in a long time yeah and he goes to visit. i mean it's like you it's supposed to be the middle of the day and like from the scene outside on the sidewalk to him walking inside this brightly lit huge museum i mean it's like the entire movies being lit by a kids nightlight everything is a dark shadow everything is insanely dark and you know uh colored in a kind of strange way and like i listened to the commentary track on that and he's like i hate to use light i hate to light my scenes at all i'm like (laughs) i can really tell i mean any any director who's like that kind of like out there with their philosophy i don't know interesting interesting to me trev um I was curious if you came across this title. I I can't necessarily say this is a movie I'm dying to see, but I've never heard of this movie. Uh I believe it's it's actually a foreign movie, but the title just blew me away. I think you almost could do a um do like a remake or something just based on the title. But there is this movie, this Romanian movie I saw on the list of 1981 films. <laughs> I know I know what you're talking about, yeah. Yeah, okay. The Oil, yeah. The Baby and the Transylvanians. <laughs> yeah. have you ever heard of this movie before
0: no i never had but i think like you i instantly like clicked on it to see what that was and i think like i was kind of like oh that's that doesn't sound like what i hoped it would be you know yeah
1: yeah you know no it's 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 not what you want to be at all but i mean the title is gold I, I i wish wikipedia had more uh information about whether it was a hit or not
0: Yeah, no, the one that I kind of came across doing this, that again, it's the same kind of thing where it's like, I don't know that I'm in a rush to see it necessarily. And from the way Wikipedia makes it sound, it doesn't sound like it would be very easy to see anyways. But um, I came across this uh, foreign animated film called Grendel, Grendel, Grendel
1: oh yeah i saw that on the list yeah.
0: yeah that is actually um based on the john gardner novel grendel which i actually am a, a fan of that novel it's a, a retelling of beowulf from the perspective of the monster grendel oh wow and this was actually an australian animated film and peter ustinov plays the voice of grendel um and boy it sure sounded like i'm just I, i'm reading here uh, although completed in 1981 it was not released in u.s theaters until the spring of 1982 because of its limited appeal, broadcasting the film was largely restricted to art theaters and urban centers, and it's like, so, like, I guess this very strange, you know, you know, art film, animated thing about Grendel, and I'm like, well, I kind of want to see that, but I'm guessing it probably never made it to DVD, right. certainly no Blu-ray of this, so I'd probably to track that down, but, yeah, you know, it's probably on YouTube. But, yeah, I was going to
1: say, you, you, yeah. you know, for that stuff that's insanely long out of print, YouTube sometimes, yeah. usually comes through in a pinch. Yeah. But uh, yeah, this uh, again, you know, this is the second time we did one of these favorite movies of this year or that year. And I think definitely we're going to keep the train rolling just because at the very least, um, it's a lot of fun for me and Trev to do. And um, from the download. Just frustrating
0: as this one was. you know, Yeah,
1: this one was like, you want know, to tear your hair out and go crazy. But yeah, from the download numbers, seems like you guys are liking it too. So I think we will keep this trend up um you know
0: you know we should say just as we head on out here like if people are want, like as an indication of how crazy this year was and what we were talking about you know it wasn't on either of our lists raiders of the lost ark
1: yeah and i thought for sure it was going to be on yours and that also was the number one grossing movie but like that's why you know like i said trev i mean i i love raiders of the lost ark i love it but it's i had to go with that thing of like what do i rewatch over and over yeah. and over and yeah and,
0: uh, and, and- and go ahead.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I was just gonna say it's it just kind of crazy because to the point of like, I always think of certain movie. Like when I think of a year, I always think of a certain movie. Uh, and and like like nineteen seventy seven, I always think of Star Wars. Nineteen eighty five, I always think of Back to the Future. Nineteen eighty nine, I always think of Batman. Nineteen eighty one, I always think about Ra- Raiders of the Lost Ark. Like immediately, you know, comes off the top of my head. And yeah, the fact that. It just it just couldn't make it into my top five. It's just crazy because I mean, yeah. it, it, like again, if we were talking about what some of the best movies of the year was, I think you I think you pretty much argue without a doubt that was probably the best popcorn film of the year for sure. Yeah,
0: that's well, one of the best popcorn movies ever. But yeah. that being said, why why I probably didn't make my list? And here we go, hot take coming in. Uh, sorry, folks. I'm I'm always gonna be a Temple of Doom kind of guy. So uh,
1: you know, I was thinking that too, and, and I clearly remember when Raiders of Lost Ark came out because I remember, I remember, um, and my cousin Derek he became a huge nut of it to the point where he was buying the hats and making his own bull whips and all that kind of shit. But I remember we went to see it, and as crazy as it might like sound or whatever, I remember two movies: Raiders of Lost Ark and Back to the Future. I remember going to see them like really not knowing that much at all just knowing this is a movie with Harrison Ford or this is a movie with Michael J Fox and that's where we're going to see it and i think those two movies in general are the like the the huge huge mega hit blockbuster movies that like when i saw them they completely blew me away cuz i kind of really had n- n- like i didn't know what to expect you know what i mean mm-hmm. and they just surpassed expectations big time so yeah yep. so yeah insane so we're on our way out, Trev. Thank you for uh, you know doing this, for taking the time to sit down and scour the uh, the annals of uh, nineteen eighty one film uh, history. I think this is one of the funnest things we like we've ever done for this podcast, or maybe any podcast, really. Like it's always fun to do uh, end of year type top ten list or whatever, but I think sometimes it's you know it's it's more it's more of a challenge. to look at these these past uh, you know yeah
0: yeah what's years. stuck with you you know yeah.
1: So definitely, thank you. I Mm -hmm. want to say, uh, obviously, everybody, thanks for listening. Um, As always, uh, I don't think it's going to drive any extra traffic to your show because you get more listeners than we do (laughs) on here. But please check out Trev's other podcast, the Days of Future podcast. uh, I'm drawing the past days of future podcast, right? Exa- yep, yep exam- you got
0: it right. Days of future podcast uh, exam- examining the X Men. Yep.
1: Yeah, where him and his buddy Joe talk about all aspects of the X Men. And I just I I want to tip my hat to you guys because you have been doing that show solidly for is it going on three years or is it two years?
0: I think uh, three years. Three yeah.
1: years. Yeah. So I mean, mm-hmm. the fact that you guys continually you know have kept up with the episodes kept up with finding new content and obviously you guys are huge fans so there's there's always going to be something within that that you're interested in but uh yeah i i i think i've heard probably a little under half the episodes and like i don't know it's it's a good podcast and, I, and like um i think i could really listen to you and joe talk about anything you guys are pretty good at the rapport and whatnot but uh, like you guys would never just like clear your throat into the microphone like I do. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, no, it's good to hear you say you could listen to us talk about anything because we certainly talk about anything on that show. Uh, we we do we go off topic a lot, but that's that's the fun of the show. Um, exactly. it's, it was never it was never meant to be the most. Uh, you know, right. analytical, hardcore X-Men show. It's meant to be two buddies talking about the X-Men. So uh, yeah, glad you like it, and thanks for the plug. And yeah, check yeah. it out if
1: you'd like to, folks. So everybody, thanks again, Trev. Thank you. Is there? Is, would you send us out on a high note to get, give give one uh, poetic uh, line about the year 1981 in films and what it meant to you?
0: Well, I mean, it didn't mean much to me at the time because I was a baby. Uh, (laughs) But, but I will say, like, yeah, there is something, you know. Sometimes, you know, you and I have gone back and forth, and it's a lot about me sometimes poking fun at you for maybe overvaluing, you know, '80s films, and you know, and and to to the like expense of other eras. But boy, man, you sure look right when you you know uh, we you look back at a year like this, and you go like, oh yeah, yeah, those movies, those years were insane. And I'd say, uh, the amazing thing about looking over this list is just like how many of these films I just grew up on, right? How many of these movies were so important to me as a kid. And that's, what's really fun about going back and looking at them. And like, and just, and I think maybe there's no better thought that I'm just, let's set everyone out on the idea of four-year-old goat sitting in a theater watching Reds. That's, that's,
1: (laughs) that's something that happened. (laughs) That's something I still remember. I just, yeah. I mean, that's, that's crazy that happened. So 1981. Everybody, thank you. Thanks for uh, joining us and helping us keep uh, the memory of so many uh, great films alive. Thank you, and we'll see you next time in the movie graveyard.
0: See ya.